And here's your challenge decision update on me versus the great everything. Um, the judges, being myself and Patrick, uh, have not been able to come to a decision uh, as to who is the winner of the, uh, the challenge. What the fighters will have to decide upon is if they're going to rather call it a draw or a rematch. Well, let me tell you, Bob, that was an exciting couple of rounds. Well, due to a time zone difference, we were unable to get an interview with the great everything. However, I was available. Yeah, yeah, it seemed like I, I went in there and I really had something to prove. Um, yet uh, the great everything who started dancing around uh, kind of evaded uh, a lot of my uh, attacks. So the big question is, do you think you can beat him? Well, you know, listen, I'm going to be honest. If he doesn't ask me anything, I can't really give anything. I can't dish out anything if he doesn't ask, you know. He's got to ask me something. Well, there you have it, folks. The update on the big challenge. Only on Integrity Radio. Patrick from my favorite show, The Great Everything. Uh, this is in response to your uh, post on clarification. Um, so it, it, if you want context, you got to go back and listen uh, to what Patrick said first, but you may get the gist of it. Okay, Patrick, you may not be saying it, but I am saying psychology has primacy over philosophy due to the advances in the understandings of neuroscience. Again, Libet's experiment that has been replicated completely changes the context of almost all philosophical hypotheses. Libet's experiment that has been replicated, it has been replicated, completely changes the context of almost all philosophical hypotheses. See, I said almost all. You state there's a replication crisis, but in my circle of scientific friends, which include Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse, Lawrence Krauss, Michael Shermer, Richard Dawkins, and a bunch of other ones I'm not mentioning, I just mentioned the stars there, they have never mentioned such a crisis. And like I've said, cognitive psychology is only about 50 years old, and is only now coming into its own. I think your, reference, your references to uh, psychology's replication crisis is perhaps a little dated. You know, much like bloodletting and alchemy. So what I'm saying is in contradiction to what you are saying. In other words, I do think that one has primacy over the other and it can be quantified. All right, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I'm not an expert uh, in anything other than, well, martial arts. But I have a good idea that I'm right and I would really appreciate to be proven wrong with... Um, some sort of evidence to the contrary. You know, I'm using the term right and wrong in that dualistic, superficial sense. You know, something that you have stated is that you and I are seeing and seeing and saying a lot of the same things, but of course coming at it at different angles. And I think those angles are important and should be highlighted within our discussions. Personally, I admit to being somewhat of a subjectivist, but I'm always trying to move into more objectivity. And I know other people may not like it, maybe I'm weird, but I look forward to being proven wrong.
with proof and evidence, of course. But I am always looking forward to being proven wrong. All right. Hey, if you haven't done so already, check out Patrick's show, The Great Everything. And uh, be sure to favorite his show, favorite my show, and uh, love your neighbor. Uh, okay, well, if you can, it's hard. I know it's hard. Just build a wall. Our emperor, you know, take our emperor's lead. Just build walls. Yeah. Love your neighbor from the other side of a nice, big, tall wall. Yeah. Uh, all right. Integrity Radio. Hey, thank you so much for giving me a shout out. I really do appreciate that. I enjoy listening to your station. So thanks for checking me out. Hey there, Integrity Radio. This is T.W. Blanking from uh, TNJ Rock and Metal Talk. Hey, love the show. But uh, what you was just talking about there, I uh, I tell my my girl all the time. I I can't I can't hardly stand to be around people when you're talking to them. You can see their eyes wandering around, like uh, you know they're not listening to a thing you're saying because they just can't wait to talk again. And that's uh, just and then it, what what they might have caught one or two words that you said. In your, I don't know, paragraph or two that you that you had just stated, and what their their responses have n really not a whole lot to do with what you're talking about. So uh, I uh, I get what's exactly what you're saying. Frustrates the hell out of me. Hey, keep up the good work, bud. Hey, see, thanks for clearing that up. I appreciate it, and I'm glad I've misinterpreted your tone. But when you say that you're happy to hear criticisms, from my part, no criticism about your approach. I mean, who the hell am I to tell anyone how to live? And I've got this rule that I fix myself, not others, even if they are wrong. And I'm not saying you are, by the way. That's just a general point. If I find somebody's approach incompatible with mine... I just stop talking to them. Or if I value the exchange, like now, I can tell them, hey, this isn't helping me talk to you because I believe in the friendly exchange of ideas. And when it turns unfriendly, well, that's just not the vibe I'm looking for. But thankfully, you explained that it wasn't being unfriendly, that it's just, you know, your vibe that's a bit more energetic than mine. But I just want to stress this again. In any event, it's never a criticism. It's just saying, here's what works for me, because I want to continue the conversation. So just to clarify, I don't criticize someone else's approach unless they're being assholes. But that's a whole different situation, right? Thanks. Now, on challenges, I love being challenged, because it helps me either refine my own argument or to change my mind. But I never see it as a winner-loser situation, which is why I didn't understand why you were talking about it in terms of fighting and winning and losing. I just like to exchange ideas. But also, not knowing you, I'd suspected that your tone had turned unfriendly and that somehow this had turned personal for you. So it wasn't a challenge anymore, but it was kind of like a fight that you were taking perhaps a bit too seriously and personally for my comfort. But you've since explained where you were coming from and how you know you also put a bit of performance into how that you speak, etc., etc. So that was reassuring for me so thank you also no apology was necessary from you uh, seriously and on the format of my show I'm happy to hear any thoughts you might have uh, it might help me make improvements you know I'm still learning how to do this man it's all just baby steps on not addressing your points I think you're still talking about psychology versus philosophy and Libet's experiment but he here's why I'm not giving you the answer I think you want I don't agree with the premise of the question I feel that saying that one is better than the other is like saying that the Godfather is better than Sergeant Pepper I mean they're just doing entirely different things second you say that Libet changes the context of all of philosophy which you have to know can't be right I mean Libet if anything, is evidence against those who believe in free will. But ever since Schopenhauer, these people have been by far the minority in philosophy. And even there, I mean, the free will debate is just a tiny part of just metaphysics, which in turn is just one of the many branches of philosophy. Libet only really addresses a minority point of one aspect of one branch of philosophy, yet you're saying that it uh, causes problems for all philosophy, and that to me is just not right. Yeah, but now you've also got my curiosity. You had my curiosity, now you have my attention, or is it vice versa? I can't remember the Jangguan Chain quote. Mala, what is your problem with Mala? I want to hear it because you seem to have a very visceral reaction about it. Uh, I want to know what is the problem with Mala? Why don't you like the guy? Is it because he's Jewish?
That's a joke. That's a joke. I don't think it's because it's... Whoa, maybe it might be because he's Jewish. Hey, who knows? I don't know you that well, buddy. No, but seriously, why don't you like Marlo? What's he ever done to you? Good morning, and once again, I'm up way too early. And now I got a phone in my hand, and I'm trying to speak and make sense. Here we go. And, uh, well, first, let me start by giving a secondary shout-out to T&J. Um, he plays some really good music. And uh, it's funny, because he started playing some hairband and uh, I was like, oh boy, I don't know. I mean, I used to be in hair bands. Uh, I don't know if I want to go through this again. There's just some flashbacks. And then, boom, he plays some epic music. Um, Sonic Youth. Jeff Buckley, stuff like that. So, right on, man. I'm glad to find your station. And uh, Pop Goes the City. Thanks for calling in. Always like listening to your show. And, um, and then Travis, I think Travis Moffat, is that the name? Um, a new, a new station that, uh, I'll be listening to. And, uh, Travis blessed me, like, with God. He said, God bless me. Now that's phenomenal, because how did he know that I sneezed from such a distance? Oh, I have no how how far Travis away is, but aloha, Travis. Of course, saying God bless to an atheist is, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I I understand the sentiment behind it. Um, Unfortunately, it is one of those situations where people mean well and don't actually do well. What do you mean by God bless you? What do you mean by uh, spirit and God and stuff like that? I just want to know what you mean, that's all, because it's such uh, an elusive thing. Although I, I understand it's supposed to mean well. Well, I'll, I'll go over to Travis's station. He might be able to fill me in on what God has to do with goodness. <laughs> and, of course, Patrick from The Great Everything. Thank you so much for, um, for keeping the ball in the air and, and taking the time to appreciate my approach, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, speaking of approach, I feel one coming on. <clears throat> In reverse response. Uh, breaking up here. I can't stop myself anymore. Mauler. Oh my God. Mauler, 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 Mauler. I have family. I have friends. They're Jews. They should be upset that Mahler's a Jew. No, no, no. I love all the Jews just like you do. Alright. You gotta admit that five minutes is not enough time to speak of Mahler. And all of Mahler's musical offenses. You know, and when it comes to music and music preference, what you like in music... You know, I would never criticize someone's taste in music. Unless it's Mahler. Come on, Mahler. It just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, Mahler is redundancy hell. One of the best musicians I've ever played with was like Mahler. He would write songs and he would pretty much do the same thing as Mahler did just beat a dead horse over and over with slight variations with each reiteration. And uh, Wagner, you mentioned Wagner. Well, at least, at least Wagner got people to goose-stepping. And you know who I'm talking about. In fact, I'm pretty sure you can't even goose-step to a single Mahler tune. This segment brought to you by Bach. Bach 
simply better. Integrity Radio. You know, good comedy to me is when you can make someone laugh and also educate them, enlighten them. Folks like Monty Python and Groucho Marx, W.C. Fields, all made us laugh and enlightened us as well. That's why it's so hard to be a good comedian, in my eyes. So, my dear listener, forgive me if I miss my mark, because mostly I'm trying to make you smile and maybe enlighten you a little bit. If that's possible. I mean, hell, you may be more enlightened than I. In which case, call in. Share your enlightenment. Make us all laugh. Caligula, do your dance. I guess the bottom line is, I'm a happy person. And I want to share that with you. All right, let's go. All right, Patrick, I am not saying that you are wrong and I am right. That's actually a part of an old paradigm. What I'm saying, and I'll say it point blank, is I think that your approach and the stuff that you speak about is part of an old paradigm. And sort of doesn't really fit into the new paradigm. I feel a little bit of your old profession is creeping in. I'm not criticizing you, I'm just criticizing the things that you're saying. You know the old joke, we're not laughing at you, we're laughing near you. Okay, I'm joking, right? You understand that, I'm joking. In, in, in the matter of Don Rickles, I'm joking. When I say you should go listen to the great everything, I'm not joking. When I say Bach is better than Mahler, I'm joking. I just like Bach better than Mahler. And we are both bringing up so many points that they really do kind of just get passed over. For instance, you made a point that Philosophy has nothing to do with psychology. Now you know that's not true. I'm not joking here. You know that's not true. You know that psychology rides on the back of philosophy. Like chemistry was built up from alchemy. We don't do alchemy anymore because we have chemistry. Now to say that I don't have an appreciation for philosophy, now that would be silly. You would have to be joking, because I am very much a philosopher. But I really don't put a lot of weight into my subjectivity until it enters into the world of objectivity. There are subjective things, like our opinion and our taste. And then there are objective things. You've stated that science is subjective. Now this may be your subjective opinion, but it's not an objective statement at all. Now we have to muddle through our subjective selves in order to get to the objectivity. So in that sense, subjectivity, you could even say that science is the act of going from subjective to the objective. This is more of a matter of do you agree or disagree, not are we correct or incorrect. However, I think it's very dangerous to muddle the line between subjectivity and objectivity. And you have not yet supported this concept of yours regarding replication. A replication crisis. So I believe what I'm asking you to do is provide proof, not empirical statements. 
I think it's a dirty trick to provide entertainment. You know, it's relatively easy to get people nodding their heads and to agree with you. And look at the whole Trump thing. I mean, come on. America is suffering from a reality crisis. America is not paying attention to the details. And so maybe that's where I'm coming from, is really getting at those details. And maybe I get a little ruffled when those points, when those details are just continually glossed over. For instance, Lebet's experiment, Lebet's findings, distinctly show us that we, our brains rather, are not the thinker of our thoughts. Our bodies are. Our bodies receive stimulus, maintain memory, and thus give us our so-called philosophies, which are entirely subjective to the person. It's dangerous to muddle the line between theory and hypothesis. Integrity Radio. Girls, tell me where specifically is the weirdest place that you personally, girls, have ever gotten the urge to make whoopee? Um. <laughs> In the no, no, no. No, don't. It's the weird. No, I'm not talking about is the weirdest location, the weirdest place. Location. I don't know. Christian. Because I see no evidence whatever for any of the Christian dogmas. I've examined all the stock arguments in favor of the existence of God, and none of them seem to me to be logically valid. Do you think there's a practical reason for having um, a religious belief for, for many people? Well, there can't be a practical reason for believing what isn't true. Uh, that's quite, at least I rule it out as impossible. Either the thing is true or it isn't. If it is true, you should believe it. And if it isn't, you shouldn't. And uh, if you can't find out whether it's true or whether it isn't, you should suspend judgment. But you can't, uh, it seems to me, a fundamental uh, dishonesty and a fundamental treachery to intellectual integrity to hold a belief because you think it's useful and not because you think it's true. Well, I was thinking of those people who find that um, some kind of religious code helps them to live their lives. It gives them a very strict set of rules, the rights and the wrongs. Yes, but you know, uh, those rules are generally quite mistaken. Uh, a great many of them do more harm than good. And uh, it would, uh, they would probably be able to find a rational morality that they could live by if they dropped this uh, irrational, traditional, taboo morality that comes down from savage ages. But are we, uh, perhaps, the ordinary person, perhaps isn't strong enough to find this own personal ethic? They have to have something imposed upon them from outside. Oh, I don't think that's true. And what is imposed on you from outside is of no value, whatever. It doesn't count. Well, you were brought up, of course, as a Christian. When did you first decide that... You did not want to remain a believer in the Christian ethic. I never decided that I didn't want to remain a believer. I decided between the ages of 15 and 18, I spent almost all my spare time thinking about Christian dogmas and uh, trying to find out whether there was any reason to believe them. And by the time I was 18, I discarded the last of them. Do you think that that gave you an extra strength in your life? Oh, I don't know. No, I shouldn't have said so. Neither, neither extra strength nor the opposite. I mean, I was just uh, engaged in the pursuit of knowledge. As you um, approach the uh, end of life, do you have any fear of some kind of afterlife? Or do you feel that that is just an oh, impossibility? No, no, I think that's nonsense. There is no afterlife? 
None, whatever. Do you have any fear of something that uh, is common amongst atheists and agnostics who have been atheists or agnostics all their lives, who are converted just before they die to a form of, of religion? Well, you know, it doesn't happen nearly as often as religious people think it does. Because religious people, most of them, think that it's a virtuous act to tell lies about the deathbeds of agnostics and such. Uh, as a matter of fact, it doesn't happen very often. This next piece of material, like most good ideas, is fairly simple. It's just a list of people who ought to be killed. Okay? Right. Yeah. Starting with these people who read self-help books. Why do so many people need help? Life is not that complicated. You get up, you go to work, you eat three meals, you take one good shit, and you go back to bed. What's the fucking mystery? And the part I really don't understand, if you're looking for self-help, why would you read a book written by somebody else? That's not self-help. That's help. There's no such thing as self-help. If you did it yourself, you didn't need help. You did it yourself. Try to pay attention to the language we've all agreed on. And a similar, a similar mystery to me. Motivation books, motivation seminars. Why would anyone need to be motivated by someone else? I say if you lack motivation, a seminar isn't going to help you. What you really need is to be smashed in the head 30 or 40 times with a golf club. That'll fucking motivate you. Or else it'll at least get you up and moving around the room. You know, locate your socks, shit like that. Get the day rolling. Motivation is bullshit. If you ask me, this country could use a little less motivation. The people who are motivated are the ones who are causing all the trouble. Stock swindlers, serial killers, child molesters, Christian conservatives. These people are highly motivated. Highly motivated. Yeah. And anyway... I think motivation is overrated. You show me some lazy prick who's lying around all day watching game shows and stroking his penis, and I'll show you someone's not causing any fucking trouble, okay? But, you know, the Jews got all, you know, they didn't want... When that Jesus movie came out, you know, no, no the Jews didn't want people to see it because... You know, they felt, you know, everybody blames the Jews for, for killing Christ. And then the Jews try to pass it off on the Romans. You know, I'm one of the few people that believes it was the blacks. <laughs> I, uh, I'm working on an open letter and it goes like this. Guess what, Martin Luther King? I had a fucking dream too. <laughs> I had a dream that I was in my living room. It wasn't my living room, but it was like playing my living room in the dream. And I walked through to the backyard, and there's a pool, and as I'm diving in, there's a shark coming up from the water with braces. So maybe you're not so fucking special. Martin Luther King. Yeah. I want to be the first comic ever to shit on Martin Luther King. <laughs> People only talk about the good things. They don't mention he was a litter bug. He would lock, he'd roll up all the windows and lock them and fart in the car with the heat up. while his family suffered and he would laugh. Eliminate, a nice cold glass of lemonade. Hey boss, I'm going to good. <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen, Ciccolini here may talk like an idiot and look like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. <laughs>
If you expected science to give all the answers to the wonderful questions about what we are, where we're going, what the meaning of the universe is, and so on, then I think you could easily become disillusioned and then look for some mystic answer to these problems. We're exploring, we're trying to find out as much as we can about the world. People say to me, are you looking for the ultimate uh, laws of physics? No, I'm not. I'm just looking to find out more about the world. And if it turns out there is a simple ultimate law that explains everything, so be it. That would be very nice to discover. If it turns out it's like an onion with millions of layers and we're just sick and tired of looking at the layers, then that's the way it is. But whatever way it comes out, its nature is there and she's going to come out the way she is. And therefore, when we go to investigate it, we shouldn't pre-decide what it is we're trying to do except to find out more about it. And so altogether, I can't believe the special stories that have been made up about our relationship to the universe at large because they seem to be too local, too provincial. The earth, he came to the earth. One of the aspects of God came to the earth, mind you. And look at what's out there. How can he... It isn't in proportion. It also, another thing, uh, has to do with the question of how do you find out if something's true? And if you have all these theories of, of the different religions, have all different theories about the thing, then you begin to wonder. Once you start doubting, which I think is, to me is a very fundamental part of my soul is to doubt and to ask. And when you doubt and ask, it gets a little harder to believe. I can live with doubt and uncertainty and not knowing. I think it's much more interesting to live not knowing than to have answers which might be wrong. I have approximate answers and possible beliefs and different degrees of certainty about different things, but I'm not absolutely sure of anything, and there are many things I don't know anything about. But I don't have to know an answer. I don't have, I don't feel frightened by not knowing things. By being lost in the mysterious universe without having any purpose, which is the way it really is, as far as I can tell, possibly. It doesn't frighten me. They ought to call it the House of Lame White Motherfuckers. Inauthentic, low-frequency, single-digit, lame white motherfuckers. Especially these male movie stars who think they're blues artists. You ever see these guys? Don't you just want to puke in your soup with one of these fat, balding, overweight, overaged, out-of-shape, middle-aged male movie stars with sunglasses, jumps on stage and starts blowing into a harmonica? It's a fucking sacrilege. In the first place, in the first place, white people got no business playing the blues ever, at all, under any circumstances, ever, ever, ever. What the fuck do white people have to be blue about? Banana Republic ran out of khakis? Huh? The espresso machine is jammed? Pootie and the Blowfish are breaking up? Shit, white people ought to understand their job is to give people the blues, not to get them. And certainly not to sing or play them. Tell you a little secret about the blues. It's not enough to know which notes to play. you got to know why they need to be played. And another thing, I don't think, I don't think white people should be trying to dance like blacks. Stop that! <laughs> Stick to your faggoty polkas and waltzes. And that repulsive country line dancing shit that you do. And be yourself, be proud, be white, be lame, and get the fuck off the dance floor. Now. I thank you. Now, listen. Long as we're discussing minorities, I'd like to mention something about language. There are a couple of terms being used a lot these days by guilty white liberals. First one is happens to be. He happens to be black. 
I have a friend who happens to be black. Like it's a fucking accident, you know? <laughs> happens to be black. Yes, he happens to be black. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had two black parents? Oh, yes, yes, he did. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and they fucked? Oh, indeed they did. Indeed they did. So where does the surprise part come in? I should think it would be more unusual if he just happened to be Scandinavian. <laughs> and the other term is openly, openly gay. They'll say, he's openly gay. But this is the, that's the only minority they use that for. You know, you wouldn't say someone was openly black. <laughs> well, maybe James Brown. <laughs> or Louis Farrakhan. Louis Farrakhan is openly black. <laughs> Colin Powell is not openly black. Colin Powell is openly white. He just happens to be black. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yay! If you've been following this channel for a while, you might get the idea that I love structure. And I do. I love productivity, organization, order, and I try to be as disciplined as possible. When some people hear this, they think that it's boring. They equate a disciplined life of structure to feelings of entrapment. Before I get into my thoughts on the topic, I want to tell you a story. So it's a hot sunny day out and there's this bee and her name is Bertha. Bertha is buzzing by her hive with some other bees just relaxing and having a good time. Like the other bees, Bertha may have some aspirations of doing great things one day. I can't really say, bees probably don't have that kind of ability to think those kind of thoughts. Suddenly, a bear starts to approach her hive. The bear is hungry for some honey and bee eggs. In an attempt to save her hive, Bertha stings the bear, but its skin is so thick that when she tries to pull her stinger out, she dismembers herself and dies. The sad part about this story is that Bertha had no choice. Through years of evolutionary wiring, she has evolved to sting threats. It's a biological reaction to a dangerous situation. She has no idea that her stinger will get stuck and that she'll die. If she had known she would have died, she might have flew away and saved her own life. Bees are prisoners to their own biology. Unlike bees, humans have the ability to override their biology through self-discipline. Let's say that someone has long-term desires to be in a deep and loving relationship, to create a meaningful career that they love, and have a healthy body. Along each step of that journey, they are tempted by short-term pleasures such as porn, junk food, or video games. Deep down, they really want the life that comes in the long term, yet they keep succumbing to short-term pleasures. The only difference between these two positions is self-discipline. We're lucky that as humans, we have the ability to practice self-discipline. It gives us the freedom to achieve what we truly want in life and allows us to break free of the biological or societal cages around us. And I think that's a pretty amazing and powerful thought. But it's not so simple. Companies are aware of our natural biological reactions and use this against us by using supernormal stimuli. An example of supernormal stimuli is junk food. Our ancestors were wired to seek out and enjoy fat and salty food because it was so rare at the time. But now companies have genetically engineered food to include more fats and salts than ever before in order to make us desire it even more. Social media and the internet as a whole is another form of supernormal stimuli. Humans are biologically wired to seek out novelty. For our ancestors, novelty could lead to more knowledge about the world, which could lead to more wisdom, which helped us thrive as a species. It has its usefulness. However, the internet has been designed to take advantage of this desire for novelty by showing you more novelty than you could ever dream of. Every page links up to more pages with more novelty and every video to a new video with even more novelty. Video games do the same thing. Some evolutionary psychologists believe that video games like first-person shooters and massively multiplayer online role-playing games imitate environments that would be similar to the ones our ancestors navigated in the past but super normal versions of them. Yet we can get greater feelings of accomplishment in video games with a lot less work. The advent of constant achievements showing up on the screen in video games is good evidence that companies are aware it will motivate players to keep playing. So not only are we sabotaged by our own biologies, but we're being targeted by corporations seeking to take advantage of us and make a profit. On the plus side, you and I are not like the bee because we're not caged by our own biology. With self-discipline, we can live the life we truly want. We have the choice to be free.
Hey, this is a shout out to the Chad Sifu. Keep it going, man. Loving the content. Integrity Radio. This is Chad Sifu. Yeah. Lao Tzu is definitely another one of my favorites. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with everything every single great philosopher has ever said. But I guess uh, you could say we all cherry pick the segments we like. And I definitely am fond of Lao Tzu. And I do have his books. A couple of them. And yeah, I'll be sharing some things from things that I draw influence from and things that I draw inspiration from in later segments. Thanks for the shout out and the call in and talk to you later. Chat out. Okay, from listening to Patrick's show, The Great Everything, he has certainly stimulated uh, a bit of my Oh, how shall we call it? Intellectualism? <laughs> he has very eloquently established some points of view. And these points of view have stimulated some research on my behalf uh, as a natural contrarian, if you will. Now, I realize that my words and my delivery aren't necessarily conducive to understanding what the hell I'm talking about. So, luckily for me, I have the internet, and I can find people that are pretty much saying what I'm saying, but saying it way better. And, um, and so, this next segment is for you, Patrick, and for any of you folks out there. It's for everybody. It's for me too, um, but it really does sort of encompass what I'm trying to say, or at least in regards to our latest conversations. All right, I hope you enjoy it, and I certainly want to hear your comments on the next segment. All right, Integrity Radio. Every behavior that we do, we do to reduce uncertainty. We do to increase certainty. When you go down below in a boat, and your eyes are moving in registry of boat, and your eyes are saying, oh, we're standing still. But your inner ears are saying, no, no, we're moving. And your brain cannot deal with that conflict, so it gets ill. The stress resulting from uncertainty is tremendous in our society. It increases brain cell death, it decreases plasticity, it makes you a more extreme version of yourself. We do almost everything to avoid uncertainty. And yet the irony is that that's the only place we can go if we're ever going to see differently. And that's why creativity, seeing differently, always begins in the same way. It begins with a question. It begins with not knowing. It begins with a why. It begins with a what if. And I should also say that these assumptions are essential for your survival. Every time you take a step, your brain has hundreds of assumptions that the floor is not going to give way, that your legs aren't going to give way, that that's not a hole, it's a surface. Right? So these assumptions keep us alive. But they can also get in the way, because what was once useful may no longer be useful. So your brain evolved to evolve. It's adapted to adapt. Right? So a deep question is, how is it possible to ever see differently if everything you see is a reflex grounded in your history of assumptions. The, our assumptions and the process of vision is both our constraint and our savior at the same time. Right? Because our brain evolved to take what is meaningless and make it meaningful. If you're not, if you're not sure that was a predator, it was too late. Right? So your brain evolved to take this meaningless data and make meaning from it, and that's the process of creating perception. And then we hold on to those assumptions. They create attractor states in your brain, right? and they become very stable. So how could we see differently? It's by engaging the process of creating perception. Well, the first step in that is to not just admit, but embody the fact that everything you do right now is grounded in your assumptions. Not sometimes, but all the time. Because if you don't accept that, then you'll never create the possibility of seeing differently.
So much of DV8, if they, people walk away with anything, it's knowing the process of perception. In some sense, I want them to know less at the end than they think they know now, because nothing interesting begins with knowing, it begins with not knowing, right? Because the next step is to then identify your assumptions, because most of everything that we do, we don't know why we do what we do. And then the final step is to question those assumptions. Okay? But questioning assumptions is incredibly difficult. Because to question assumptions, to doubt what you assume to be true already, especially if that assumption defines who you are, is to do the one thing that our brain evolved to avoid, which is uncertainty. Certainty. In fact, uncertainty is such a, a, a difficult, dangerous thing that evolution has created a brain that tries to avoid it altogether to the extent that we have things like confirmational bias. Well, we'll start looking for evidence to confirm what we assume to be true already. That we would rather hold on to assumptions that we know don't work because that is safer, we think, than questioning them and stepping into a place that we don't actually know. Even though that other place might be a great deal better than where we are. Right? This actually exists all the time within politics. It exists within the concept of the negative view of U-turns, where we ridicule politicians for changing their mind because they got new evidence. We, we want them to hold on to the same path despite the evidence, which actually shifts them touch which actually shifts them much towards, towards a belief, as opposed to anything that's evidence-driven. So this also then leads on to the idea of whether or not the brain ever does big jumps, or doesn't only do, do small steps. And the answer is that the brain only ever does small steps. I can, I can only get from here to the other side of the room by passing through the space in between. I can't teleport myself to the other side. Right. Similarly, your brain only ever makes small steps in its ideas. So whenever you're in a moment, it can only actually shift itself to the next most likely possible. And the next most likely possible is determined by its assumptions. We call it the space of possibility. Right. You can't do just anything. Some things are just impossible for you in terms of your perception or in terms of your conception of the world. What's possible is based on your history. Right? So what that means is where does that leave us with creativity, which we have this concept that you're linking two things that are very far apart. But if the brain never does big jumps, what is, what's really happening? And the idea is that for the person being creative, all they're doing is making a small step to the next most likely possibility based on their assumptions. But when someone on the outside sees them doing that, they think, wow, how did they put those two things that are far apart together? And the reason why it seems that way is because for the observer, they are far apart. They have a different space of possibility. And in their space of possibility, they exist way over here. So creativity on, in this sense is only created from the outside, not from the inside. For the person being creative, they're making a logical next step. The difference is that their space of possibility is different. They have different assumptions, different biases. In fact, they might have a more complex space of possibility because they have more complex biases and assumptions. Maybe they had a more open attitude to when they experienced other cultures, etc., and they assimilated more complex assumptions. So they have more directions in which they can move within their space of possibility. Right? So we interpret that as them being created by linking things that are far apart. But in fact, it's a logical process of making small steps changing your space of possibility by identifying and then questioning your assumptions. You know, I swear it's getting to the point where you can't even really communicate with another human being on the planet Earth. It's as if people want to talk, but they don't want to be listened to. What I mean by that is, when someone speaks, I listen to it, and then I give my perspective. I respond to what you just said. And it seems more and more that this is misconstrued as ridicule or judgment. 
Now, this is kind of absurd because I don't know any of you people. I could never make those sorts of calls. And even if I knew you, I probably wouldn't make that sort of a call. And so what we get is people preaching to the choir or or just people talking at one another and enjoying just the sound of their voices, which is fine, I guess. But it's sort of dubious to communicate with someone and then when they communicate back in reference to what you say to accuse them of ridiculing you or attacking you. And then furthermore, it seems that you can't talk without speaking within a certain frequency range, like a certain emotional frequency range where, you know, don't get too excited. Yeah, I, I, I don't get that. How do you even communicate in such a deadpan manner? Nonetheless, I will do my best to not come off as I'm ridiculing you or judging you. Um, I'm just communicating. I do get to say how I feel and think about what you just said. I mean, that's the whole value of communication, right? <laughs> okay. Integrity Radio. It's coming near the end of our show. <clears throat> Isn't it, Luna? Yeah. And I hope that today you have laughed and loved and enjoyed life. And uh, if you haven't, I hope that tomorrow brings a much better day. Integrity Radio.